this series called David, you know, an unlikely leader. And we said leadership is influence at its core. So even though some of us may shy away from the title of leader, the reality is most of us have influence in somebody else's life. It's not do we have influence, it's where do we have influence with, uh, you know, or to whom. And uh, today we get to talk about a, a not so fun subject if you ask people, because a leader confronts. A leader confronts. And so most people are like, I don't like to have confrontation conversations. How many of you guys would be honest that you do not like to have confrontation conversations? Okay, I thought so. You know, some of you guys are like, I love them, which we're going to talk about you in just a second and the sickness that you have. Um, well, uh, because most of us don't, when it's time to confront, uh, we've already talked about it with so many different people to either get them on our side or make us feel better. And then uh, we get emboldened to have the conversation uh, and, and it's fascinating because we get extra bold when we do it so passively aggressively. Uh, you do realize that we live in, in a passive aggressive society unlike uh, any in our, in our history. Uh, it's, it's, it's terrible because things that we are apt to say through texts and social media, we would never say face to face or many of us would not say it at least in that way. And so we blast these things out, thinking that we've been emboldened to have a confrontation conversation through this way, realizing it's just as passive aggressive as before. Now, what are life's toughest confrontation conversations? Uh, what are they? Uh, one of the things I, I think of that many people go through in adolescence, uh, maybe even in the college age, uh, young adulthood, is the conflict conversation of breaking up. Right? Isn't that weird? It just gets awkward, you know, either on the receiving end or when you're just like, oh, I know this isn't just working out. I remember, you know, uh, in seventh grade, uh, the girlfriend that I thought I was with, she, she didn't even tell me. All of a sudden, she went to a thing and I, and I found out from somebody else that it was with my best friend. And I'm just like, this got weird. So she broke my heart. My mom tried to console me. There's no Oz. Thanks for the sympathy. Um, <laughs> you know, but seventh grade. So it got me thinking you know, about some of these. And, and I've had a clip that, that, that killed me. I'll, I'm going to only show you part of it. So go ahead and watch the screen with me now. Now I thought I'd share some of my favorite awkward breakup tweets from you guys. Here we go. This first one's from at Jamie Mank. She says, in seventh grade, our mothers were friends, so I asked my mom to break up with him through his mom. Oh. Hi, Debbie. It's Carol. Uh, the kids aren't going to be seeing much of each other anymore. You have a minute? Uh, this one's from at scop32. She says, after my boyfriend cheated on me, I broke up with him in front of his friends. Walking away, I got my hair caught in a tree and was stuck there for 20 minutes. Oh, never want to see you again, okay? Just <laughs> 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 so, so embarrassing. Oh. <laughs> he says, after we broke up, neither of us knew what to do, so we high-fived. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Yeah. yeah, we did it. This last one's from at Jordan Philly. He says, we were at a Laker game when we broke up. The kiss cam landed on us. My girlfriend mouthed to the camera, we broke up. Oh. There we have it. Those are our Tonight Show hashtags. <laughs> <laughs> awkward. It's awkward having confrontation conversations. Now, other harder, you know, ones is when you have to talk to a coworker, a boss, you know, about a work issue and you, you have to build yourself up for that. Or when you have to talk to a family member or a spouse or a child, you know, uh, or, or, or a mom or a dad, it's just hard. Uh, when you have to talk to a friend who's hurting themselves or hurting others, it's not easy 
having these confrontation conversations. Now, it may sound a little bit funny, but the whole point, if you get nothing else out of this today, is do you have a Nathan and are you a Nathan? So do you have a Nathan and are you a Nathan? So let me kind of explain. When we blow it, do we have a Nathan in our lives? Uh, while you're thinking about that, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, this passage will not be on the screen. I want you to look at it uh, with your own eyes. And so if you have a smartphone, the YouVersion Bible app is a great one. Or we have uh, free Bibles in the back as a gift from us to you. Uh, but while you're turning there, I want to recap kind of where we've been. Last week, we talked about David. We've been in a series called David, an unlikely leader. And David decides not to do what he was supposed to do as king and go off to war. So he finds himself bored and bored to death. And he walks around the roof, looks down, sees a beautiful woman bathing, and he lusts after her, finds out who she is, calls her you know, uh, to you know, his room, and he sleeps with her. That's where we ended last week. Her name was Bathsheba. And where we pick up this week, then in verse 5, is she gives word to him, uh, I'm pregnant. So his way of dealing with this conflict situation, with this situation at hand, because she's married is to call her husband from the war to him, and he uh, asks him, his name is Uriah, and he asks him, hey, Uriah, how's the battle going? And he kind of explains what's going on. He says, great, well, I know it's been a long journey. Why don't you stay home with your wife, you know, hang out, you know, do things that married people do, and then we'll send you off to war. So uh, he goes to his house, but because he is a great leader, he says, you know what? I'm not going to hang out with my wife because my men can't do this. Why should I get the luxury and the privilege of doing this? So he sleeps, you know, on like this mat outside, you know, um, the house. So David's like, this isn't working. Let's go to plan B. So plan B is I'm going to invite Uriah to stay an extra night and we're going to, you know, just have a great time and I'm going to get him drunk. So he gets him drunk, sends him home, but he still is aware and still doesn't connect with his wife. And so David says, all right, plan C. He writes a letter, to gives the letter to you know, Uriah to give to the commander whose name is Joab. And it says this, hey, when you march in your next battle, I want you to put Uriah in the front lines. And when you get close to the wall, which you're not supposed to do that, a that day and age in military advancement, because all they would do, unless you were going to overtake the wall, is shoot at you with arrows and kill you, you know, uh, qu quite easily. So from a military standpoint, not a smart decision, but I want you to kind of charge the wall, and then I want you to retreat, but don't tell Uriah. So Joab gets the message from Uriah's hand, opens it, says, all right, I'm going to follow the king's orders, puts him at the front, retreats, Uriah dies. David then says, well, Bathsheba, why don't I you come under my protection, you know, and so you can become one of my wives. And he think his cover-up is complete. And so that's kind of the situation that we find David in. Now, just like David, our first response to sin, especially ones that will have major consequences if it gets out, is to cover it and to hide it. That's what our response is, if you're actually to be honest with yourself. And it's been going on since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, when they ate the forbidden fruit, notice what took place in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover, that's the first thing, to cover themselves, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden, so they hid. They hid from the Lord among the trees, and we've been doing it ever since. 
All right, we have this sin, we have this thing going on. Our first response is we feel this shame, we feel this guilt, we feel this remorse. And so what should we do? Well, let's cover and hide it. Uh, What's so funny is like, you're going to try to hide from God. Yeah, hide. You're going to hide in the trees, you know, from God. Uh, If you've ever, you know, uh, been around little kids, uh, either in the classroom, you know, um, or even as parents, you do know when our kids get in trouble, they do the same thing. They hide and they cover themselves. So let me give you kind of four examples that's also just as humorous as us hiding from God as our kids hiding from us when they're in trouble. Here's the first one. (laughs) All right, I did something wrong. You can't see me. You can't find me. Or here's the second one. Yep. (laughs) Nope, I did something wrong. I must hide in shame. Third one. That's one one of my favorites, you know, like I'm hiding because I can't see you. You can't see me. But this is my favorite one, the last one. Yep. Right? And that's the same way we do it. Like, if God can't see us, you're like, come on, He's going to be able to see us. But that is our tendency, even as little kids. We want to hide and cover that shame. Now, these are funny, but if I'm going to be honest, I can look at my own life and I do the same thing. And I think you do as well. Uh, in, in fact, you know, um, I know that for some of us, and as we hide it and somebody finds out, we try to shift blame. So we blame others. I'm the victim. Well, I only did that because, or we justify it. We rationalize it. Compared to somebody else, I'm actually doing okay. Now, you do realize that God loves us as a parent loves his child, especially those of us who received him. And he's going to do whatever it takes to help us in that connection and journey with him. Some of it will be natural consequences and allowing the sin in which we participate in to kind of work its course, and we're going to learn that way. Otherwise, other ways, he's going to bring it to our attention in one way, shape, or form, because he loves, as any parent who loves would discipline their child. In fact, Hebrews 12, 5, and 6 says, and have you forgotten my encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one as he accepts as his child. It's all out of love. And so if that's who our God is, and he loves David, let's take a look at how this played out. Again, 2 Samuel 12, 1 to 12, and this will not be on the screens, but let me read it. So the Lord sent Nathan, there he is, Nathan the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, and the other was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. Kind of many of our dogs in our household, doesn't it sound very similar? He cuddled with it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. This is what he says. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. You, Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why? 
Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you despise me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. So here's the question. Do you have a Nathan in your life? That doesn't sound very encouraging or fun, but actually it's one of the best things that you and I can have. Who do you have in your life that speaks truth and love to you because of your connection with God and with other people? That they are that person. Now here's what we know about us. We are more apt to receive a good Nathan in our life if we put people in positions of Nathan in our lives. If we actually say, hey, can you be that person in my life? Uh, let, let me give you an example of the difference between giving permission or not. Uh, the times or seasons where I decide, you know what, I think it's time to go on a diet. So one of the things I try to do, and this again is a very small example of this, is to say to my wife who sees me at home, hey honey, if I'm snacking after nine o'clock, can you just keep me accountable? Can you be this Nathan in my life? And so I'll go to the refrigerator past nine, I'll kind of reach into the freezer, and she's like, is that, she says it's so nice, is that something you really want? And I'm like, really want? No, no. Thank you, hon, for keeping me accountable because I'm the one that gave you permission to be able to do this and asked you to be Nathan in my life. There are other times of the year where I am not on a diet. In fact, I'm the opposite. And so then it's after nine o'clock. I go to the refrigerator, whatever it may be. And my wife says, should you be eating that? I'm like, well, who are you to tell me what to do? <laughs> right? It's a lot easier. Both are true, but it's a lot easier when you give someone permission to speak truth into our lives. Do we have a Nathan in our lives. Now, you might say, I don't, I don't have a person like that and, that, and that's okay. But that's part of what the church is here, is to try to help you find that person in your life, which is why we have small groups, men's groups, women's groups. That's why we say it almost on a weekly basis. Are you in anything beyond weekend service where you can be known and know others to help you in your relationship with Christ and to help you in life in general? And to find that place, you know, to find the place and the people that really mesh and work well with you as Nathans in your life. Now, uh, we've got places, you know, like a CTL for men, chosen to lead. It happens a couple of times a year. Other places like a Titus 2, where people willingly say, I want you to be a Nathan in my life. I want you to be a mentor, you know, for me. And it's fascinating what happens in our lives when we submit ourselves underneath someone else in our lives who's going to help us and help us grow. In fact, let me show you, you know, one example of a gal who just has gone through, you know, this Titus 2 ministry and the impact that it made on her life. Go ahead and watch the screen with me now. I came in to the Titus 2 group very angry. Uh, I was angry at God. Um, I usually had heated discussions with him, and usually I was the only one talking. And I would bargain with him. Like, if you do this, I'll do this. And you it wasn't a relationship, it was more like a business, you know, business type relationship, you know. And I would contract with him for things or for prayers. And then when I got into the Titus 2 group, my whole relationship changed. My faith grew, definitely my faith grew. Um, I knew how to pray to him, how to talk to him, um, how to listen for him. Um, how to recognize the gifts he's given me. It's just so amazing. Everything was positive. I mean, there wasn't one thing. I mean, the first night, he was even wondering if I should even be there because I was just so angry. 
I'm not angry anymore. I'm more at peace with my relationship with him. I'm more apt to listen and pray with my heart rather than my attitude. Isn't that cool? To see the transformation of someone who is willing to go on a difficult journey when you have those things that are going on in your life and allow someone else to speak in. So do you have a Nathan? Secondly, love cannot stand by while a person harms or destroys themselves or those around them. It's not love. And so the second one is, who are we a Nathan to? Be a Nathan, don't be a Joab. See, Joab was commander of the armies. Joab had great respect for his king. And he gets this letter from the hand of Uriah who says, bring him to the front lines that kills him, and he doesn't question the order in one way, shape, or form. He was not a Nathan in David's life, and David needed him to be. David needed him to say, this is out of character. This is not you. David, you don't want to do something like this. Uriah has been one of your best friends for years. He was wandering with you. He had your back in all situations. What has he done that he would deserve such treatment? And Joab stood on the sidelines and allowed it to happen. In fact, was complicit in what took place. So don't be a Joab. Be a Nathan in someone else's life. In fact, think of someone right now that you might need to have a confrontation conversation with. And again, it doesn't have to be this ginormous thing. It may be, you know, someone, you know, who you have to have, you know, who's got substance abuse issues, you know, or is just having an affair or something like that, that you just really need to have that conversation. That's true. Just think about it as the littlest things. Like, hey, my kids are not taking their dishes to the sink as much as they used to. Okay, there's a confrontation conversation happening. You know, and you might say, this afternoon at one o'clock. But uh, you, you might have to have it with a friend, with a coworker, a neighbor, a spouse. Now, I want you to think of that situation as we go through this. Now, some of you, like I mentioned at the beginning, are like, I love confrontation conversations. Finally, Dan, you're talking about something that's me. I've been confronting our culture and people on Facebook for years. <laughs> Which is why I want to say, how do we confront effectively? right? How do we confront effectively? The goal of confrontation is about relationship restoration between God and other people. That's the goal. The goal is not just to get something off your chest, you know, as we walk through this together. So how do we confront effectively? James 5.20 says it this way, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save the person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. It's not easy, but it's important. So here are some ways to confront effectively as you're processing that person or that situation in your mind. Number one, we must make sure our heart and our motivation is right. If our heart or motivation is just to get it off our chest because we're about justice and fairness and we've been wronged, you're going to have to take it back a notch. Are you doing it for their benefit? When we do it for their benefit, then our heart becomes right. Their benefit in their relationship with God, their benefit in their relationship with other people. If not, you need to wait. Because this is how Galatians 6.1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help the person back onto the right path. The way in which we do it is important, which leads us to the next one. We've got to confront relationally, face-to-face, person-to-person. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 18. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. Again, it's about bringing people back. 
That's the purpose of confrontation. If you are not successful, then take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything may be confirmed by one or two or three witnesses. If the person still refused to listen, take your case to the church. Now, let me pause right there. First thing, if you're planning on having a major confrontation that's a moral sin issue with someone who's not a Christian, don't do it. You can have confrontation conversations with people or not, but you're asking people to live by a standard based on something they've never agreed to. So why are you asking them? It's not going to go well if you're asking them to do that. Now, obviously, there's just normal confrontation conversations we need to have, but all these scriptures we're talking about is for one believer and another believer in terms of a specific way to do it. Now, this one works for both someone who's not a believer and someone who is. It does work. The, the principles work. So face-to-face... Person to person is the first way. That's what Jesus says. Second, if it doesn't work, you still have not gone on social media. You've still not shared it as a prayer request in the group. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Lord, please help me with this Mark person you know at work who just really irritates me and has not done nice things. And on Tuesday afternoon, you should have seen what he did. And you know, I'm just like, well, that's not a prayer request. But that's what we do. Prayer request, you know what I'm talking about. So take two or three then other godly people not people who are on your side. You're not ganging up on. Think of them as Switzerland, okay? Godly people, neutral, who just want best for all parties involved. And thirdly, it says take it to the church. Now, that just means church leadership. So example would be you'd take it to your community group now, leader, your community group leader. You'd take it to a pastor. You might even take it to an eldership. You know, that would be the way to take it to the church, okay? Which leads us to number three. We've got to then speak the truth in love. Just speak the truth in love. Now, some churches are really, really good at speaking the truth. And they've been known as if you take one step out of bounds with this, you're almost ostracized relationally. So you might say they're legalistic in nature, right? That's a group of churches like that. There's other churches I know that are all about grace. Grace, 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 grace. Doesn't matter what you do, what you say, how you live, Jesus loves you, so let's just love each other. You know, grace, grace, grace. It just doesn't matter. It has no matter. This isn't right. This isn't right. Jesus says he came with grace and truth. We need to do both, both ends. We need to speak the truth, but we need to do it in love. And love is the key, which leads us to the next one, number four. We've got to make sure it's the right timing, okay? Do the best you can to make sure it's the right timing. Many of us are immediate confronters. We are black and white. We're like, I've got to confront you right away. How do I know? Because I've driven by you, accidentally cut you off, and you decided to immediately confront me. You know, in different ways, and then I gave you the bird back. You know, is is is, is the way. So we did. Some of you guys will get that in a few. Did the, I just derailed the whole sermon with that thing, didn't I? Nine nine thirty special. Okay, we want to confront right away. Now let's go back biblically. You do realize that by the time God sent Nathan to talk to David, it had been a year. We read the Bible as if all these things happened immediately. But it had been almost a year since when this first took place to when he's confronted there. God isn't right away in some of the confrontations. He's allowed some things to take place to allow us to see how we're going to respond and react in the situation. So let me tell you, the worst time to confront is right before you go to sleep. I know. Don't ever do that. I've received and given, and, th- and you, you lose more sleep you know, that way. So just don't do it late, late at night when both parties you know, are really tired. Uh, we also confront at the wrong time when we're reacting just out of emotion. Uh, I've done this in a marriage, you know, all the time, you know, where something hits me and I'm like, you know, you get 
up and you're just like, oh yeah? You know, you like to twist it on them. And so there's an emotional conversation. Do it when both parties are, are doing the best that they can emotionally. You can't predict all of it, you know, but just on a regular basis. Or maybe you've been the opposite. You've had a terrible day at work. I mean, awful. You've been yelled at. You, you, you had to lay somebody off. You know, the customers just cussed you out. And you walk, you're just dragging in. You open the door. And the first thing that's said to you is, why didn't you do this? Not a good time to be able to do that. So we got to think through timing. Fourthly, or fifthly, we must use the right words in the right tone. Pray. Ask God for wisdom. The right words are important. God gave the story to Nathan to be able to help. Have you thought through this and say, God, I need your wisdom to be able to give to this person? And then lastly, you've got to pray for and possess courage. Otherwise, what we do is to confront is to tell everybody else, and we don't even get to the part of leading them face to face. So how did Nathan get courage? For those of you a little bit older like myself, he got courage from the Blues Brothers. He was on a mission from God. Some of you guys are like, what is he talking about? He's on a mission from God. See, when God has asked you to do something, that's the courage that you can do. You still need to follow the steps that God has called you to follow, but now it's not about you. It's about that other person, but you want to do this because God has called you to do this out of love for the other person. Nathan's responsibility is before God, but it's also because he loved David that he would have this hard conversation because we do know that the truth will set us free. Now, how do we know if our confrontation conversation accomplished its purpose? How do we know that it was actually effective? Now, it's a word that we don't quite understand sometimes in our culture, and that is the word repentance. If it's accomplished what it's been meant to accomplish, then repentance will be key. And repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. The first step of repentance is there's going to be an admission of sin. You know, that I have sinned. Like 2 Samuel 12, 13. This was David's response to being confronted by Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. See, the purpose of Nathan's confrontation, once again, was to bring him back to relationship with God and with other people. So the first, admit that there is sin. Secondly, a part of repentance is there will be a desire to break from sin. You, you do realize that the word repentance means I'm heading in one direction, and then I'm going to do a U-turn away from that sin that I'm entangled with and head in an opposite direction to do a 180. Now, sometimes we say, I'm sorry, but sometimes we're sorry we got caught. Sometimes we're sorry we're confronted. And so this takes it a step further. Proverbs 28, 13 says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn, there's the repentance, they will receive mercy. Third, repentance means there will be a broken and humble spirit. It will actually grieve you. There's a humble spirit. Psalms 51, verse 17, David wrote this psalm after being confronted by Nathaniel and all this thing being played out. The sacrifice you desire, David writes, is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O Lord. See, sin has power, its greatest power in darkness. So we hide it. Remember, we hide this. But when we confess the sin to the light is where we receive the forgiveness that we're looking for. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, but if we confess our sins to Jesus... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Now, one of the lies that we believe is one of the lies that David believes. 
I have got to keep this sin because it's a big one. It's going to hurt other people. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to be ashamed. I don't want to see that other person hurt. So we bury it and we hide it just like David did. The problem with that idea is two things. One, God always sees it. And number two, it begins to eat away, to, eat away at you from within. You do realize that it starts affecting relationships unintentionally. And then you have people around you like, what is wrong with you? Because you can only stuff it for so long before it begins to eat at and harm relationships around you. And so we confess our sins to God, but the second reason thing we do for forgiveness is we confess our sins to one another for healing. Let me say that again. We confess our sins to God for forgiveness, because some of you are like, well, I've already talked to God about this. You're right. But when we confess to one another, we actually get healed. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Some of you in this room right now are so dying from the inside and this weight that you're feeling over and over and over, it's just destroying you from within. And you've talked to God about it and God has forgiven you, but you're holding on because you need to let it out. You need to confess to someone else. You need to get it off of your chest. Now, there's a guy in our church who passed away this last year named Dean Burns. Dean was one of my favorite guys you know, uh, in our church. He was a former elder you know, here, very, very loving, significant man. One of the things that many of us were surprised by that did not know about Dean was uh, at his memorial service, we found out that in one of Dean's previous churches uh, that he had a biker ministry. You know, I didn't intend that way. And if you knew Dean, you know that it would be like a cowboy that hangs out with a ballerina. You know, they just don't fit. You know, just like, okay, these two don't have a lot in common except for Dean loved people. So here's this rough and tumble biker comes stumbling in the church. Dean befriends him. They begin a relationship. He becomes Nathan in this guy's life. And, and what we're hearing is, is the guy comes up and begins to testify about demon, uh, demon, Dean's influence into his life. Absolutely amazing. And then he says, as we're in this discipleship relationship, um, I tell Dean that I have got warrants out for my arrest in California. And so Dean prays and processes. He says, you know what the right thing to do is? you need to go back to California and you need to confess. You need to be able to, you know, to, to, to throw yourself at the mercy of the court. So he believed Dean. He said, okay, I'm going to do that. So he gets on his bike, travels all the way back to California and turns himself in, throws himself at the mercy of the court and a miracle upon miracle happens. And the judge kind of throws out all the warrants in the case and he's able to go free. So he heads back. He tells Dean, and then he tells all of his biker friends who also have warrants out for their arrest. <laughs> they weren't so lucky. You know, they're like, dude, what's up? This happened to you. How could that happen to us? Which is a great reminder for us that confession doesn't remove consequence of sin. Because a lot of us feel, feel that way. You're like, well, wait a minute. I did all the right steps. I talked to God. I confessed it to others. Why am I still suffering the ramifications of my affair? Why am I suffering the ramifications of my pornography, ramifications of my lying, ramifications of my... Because there's natural consequences that still take place. And a lot of times when we go through that, we actually then look at God and say, God, and this is an American thing, you're not fair. How come you're not fair? I mean, look at the consequence... And put yourself in David's shoes and see if that doesn't come into your mind that David went through. His family will live by the sword as a consequence. 
His own household will rebel against him. One of his wives will be given to another man and to do in broad daylight what he did in secret, and his child will die. Now we look at that and we're like, what in the world? Now David, his first response to after his child dies is he gets up and he eats and then he goes and he worships God. Many of us would say, no, 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 this is not fair for what I did. Why did this person have to suffer? Why am I going through all this stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until we place ourselves in Uriah's family's shoes. See, don't you want to have a God, a God of justice as well? Uh, imagine being Uriah's brother, family member, close friend, that the David and his power and his privilege killed this person. Wouldn't you hope that there would be consequence? I think you and I would if we were in... Uriah's family's case. But here's the most interesting thing. A parent tells a child a hundred times, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and on the hundred and first time, they decide to punish the child, and the child looks up to them and says, why are you being so mean? And you're like, really? Notice not once, not once, does David ever blame God in any of this? Not one time. He says, my sin, my fault, my consequence. And he begins to move forward from there, which leads us to our last point. There will be a willingness to be restored. There will be a willingness to be restored. David also writes in Psalms 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. See, we live in a society where people's values change. What we believe is right and wrong begins to change, but God's word never changes. And we've got to continue to follow what his word says, not being afraid to speak the truth in love, especially to one another. Now, the story of Bathsheba really ends really coolly, in a really cool way. She has another son, and she names him Solomon. Now, Solomon in the Hebrew means Jedidiah, which means beloved of God. And the very next thing that David does after that is he goes to war. The very place he should have been when this whole story began, he finds himself in the right place again, able to do what God had called him to do. So your next step, who do you need to confront? Who do you need to confront? Now hold on before you start going there. It starts by allowing God's spirit to confront us before we confront others. Matthew 7, 5 says, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. And so we come to God and say, God, find ways in me. We confess to others we get clean, we get right before God because not of what we have done because of what Christ has done. And then we have these loving, truthful conversations with those around us. Why? Because we care enough about people to confront them in love. What will you choose to do on this day? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to serve, opportunity to walk on a journey. Many of us have been confronted in the wrong way, Lord, and we have some scars and some pain by that. Others of us have confronted in the wrong way, and we need to confess some of that. Help us, Father, to be a people out of grace and love, even when it's hard, irregardless of people's reaction, knowing that our first reaction to be confronted is usually not a happy one. But if we have people who love us, Lord, may we have a Nathan. And so I pray that you would reveal who we could ask to be Nathans in our lives this week, who we could submit to. Bring that person to mind even right now. And Father, help us to have the courage, the right timing, the place, perspective, to have a confrontation conversation this week. We love you in Jesus' name.